Oh, praise the Lord. I'm so honored and blessed uh, to be here in the pulpit today. Um, as Pastor Craig, my brother, said last week, it, it's, it, it, I love preaching the Word of God, but there's a heaviness that comes with it. Um, because to stand here and proclaim these things, I must be living them as well. And so it, it, it's, it, it, it comes, and, and it, it's heavy to stand in a pulpit with such a godly man like Pastor Adams and, and, and Craig and those, those great preachers. And last week he, he delivered an amazing sermon. I was really blessed by it as we talked about realizing Satan. And, um, you know, God has a way of orchestrating everything so that it, that it works out perfectly. So, you know, last week Craig talked about realizing Satan and the attacks that are going to come on your life. As Scripture says, in this world you will have troubles of many kinds. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And so today I'm going to be talking about when you're in the middle of those storms, wherever you are, you can live victorious. Okay? And so we know the attacks are going to come. But how do we respond in the middle of those attacks? And so um, I'm just grateful that Pastor asked me to speak today. And it is my prayer that that they will be restored. I I know that... um, it takes a lot of time every week to prepare, to preach a sermon, to spend time in prayer, to be filled with the Spirit and prepare yourself. And He does that week in and week out for us. And so I just pray God's blessing on them as, as they're away. So um, first of all, a, a lot has changed since the last time I preached on this stage. Uh, a whole lot of things have changed. First of all, there's a lot more people in here. Praise the Lord. So... Um, the COVID pandemic is starting to, to, to simmer down a little bit, and we're starting maybe to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, also, the last time I preached to you, I, I was here on January the 10th, and I preached a sermon called Something Needs to Change, okay? And, and, and I, after I preached that sermon, I was sitting right here on the front row, and, and Pastor Adams got up after I preached the message, and he began to give an invitation, and I was like, well, I'm not the preacher, so I better pray too and say, what is God trying to teach me? And my wife was sitting just a couple rows behind me there, and she was praying the same, you know, same thing. And as, we, as I began to pray there, the Lord spoke in my spirit, and he said, Scott, I, I want you to be the change that you want to see. I want you to be the change that you want to see. And so my wife and I began to pray and, and talk to our children, talk to some of our godly counsel. And um, anyway, long story short, um, we decided that after 30 plus years at our previous church home where we've been members for a long time, that God was calling us to be members here at EBC. So, so praise the Lord that I preach to you today, not as a visitor, but I'm one of the body here at EBC. So, all right. So praise the Lord for that. So And perhaps um, the biggest change um, in my life personally took place in February of this year. And and you see, I have been dealing with um, some shoulder pain in my right shoulder for a couple years. I'd seen the doctor. I'd had a couple shots in there. They thought it was my rotator cuff. Um, You know, that's all we... And so, you know, it bothered me mainly when I go... I like to play tennis or throw football or shoot basketball. If I did those things, it would hurt. And so, you know, I, as a guy, I figured out, you know, how to take care of this. I just wouldn't throw the football, shoot basketball, or, or do anything. So that was my solution for the problem. Well, we went on a little trip in November, went to the beach, and while I was there, I was complaining about it the whole time because I was throwing football on the beach and I was doing these things. And I promised my wife that when I returned, that I would, I would reach out to my friend, Dr. David Gooch, who's, who's a buddy of mine, and tell him, hey, look, My shoulders bother me again. And so I did. And uh, anyway, pushed it off as long as I could. But at the beginning of the, sometime in early February, I got an MRI scan done of my shoulder. And we were expecting to find that I had some rotator cuff disease and maybe he would go in there and clean it out. But what he called me on February the 9th, he said, Scott, I've got some bad news. You've got a worrisome looking mass in the head of your shoulder. He said, I'm really worried about this. I've had five other radiologists look at your x-rays, 
And I've got you an appointment set up in two days in Dallas to see an orthopedic oncologist. Well, all of a sudden, man, just the world stopped in that moment, you know. What I thought was, was fine. And so, um, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to kind of fast forward for you. Over the next two months, I had two, two biopsies, multiple doctor's visits. I would learn I had an extremely rare form of leukemia that was only located in my right shoulder. And there's so much to share here. I could share how God led us to this super specialist at MD Anderson. I could tell you how the Lord gave me a peace that passes all understanding. I could tell you this, how the Lord literally changed my diagnosis from the one I got at Baylor that said, in 10 years you won't be here anymore, to a diagnosis that has a great prognosis. Jesus did that, okay? The Lord, the Lord worked in so many ways, amazing doctors, the radiation. I mean, we have an amazing Heavenly Father that walks with us. And so, um, but I want to share with you probably not my greatest moment, okay? I want to share with you the moment that I learned that I had cancer. Not, not that first, hey, you may have something, you know, the moment that I actually got the pathology report back. I was, I was sitting at home on Saturday morning. Saturday morning is my extended time in the Word of God morning. Um, I'm not rushed. I spend time reading the Word of God, praying, meditating. And I was walk, had just walked outside on my back porch. My wife and my kids were gone. I don't remember where they were. And my cell phone goes off. And it says, you have a new result in your Baylor Scott and White app. Well, you know, I'm thinking, I'm just going to look in this, in this app and it's going to say, your blood count is this or whatever. You know, I was, they did all kinds of tests on me. So I wasn't, and, and I click on that message and there it is in big bold. It says, you have leukemia or lymphoma. That was the pathology report. Probably not the way they wanted me to figure out and definitely not the way I wanted to figure out. And, and, and I was sitting there and, and, and all of a sudden, I was shocked. Tears filled my eyes. And, and I, I, just, I just couldn't believe it. it. It's not that I didn't know it was a possibility. It's that people in my, in my previous church, people in this church, people all over the city and actually around the world were praying that it would not come back as a cancer. And, and, and you see, in, in this particular moment, I shut my Bible. That's what I did. I couldn't read it. I couldn't read it. I, I, I shut it. I said, where, where was God in this moment? Where was he? I, he says in his words that if I had the faith the size of a mustard seed, and I said this for this mountain to move, that he would move it. But I, didn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't feel him right then. I, I was, where are you, God? Over the next 24 hours of my life, I wrestled with God in a way that I haven't wrestled with him in my adult life. Over those hours, I began to preach sermons with myself. And I'll tell you what, I started at the resurrection. I had to preach a sermon to myself on how I knew the resurrection was true. Because if it's true, then, then he is who he says he is. And then I had to preach a sermon to myself about how God had radically changed my life. I had to preach sermons to myself about what I had seen God do in my life. And then all of a sudden, fast forward, and I'm sitting on the pew at my previous church on a Sunday morning, first song, I didn't sing much. <laughs> Second song, I sat down and I began to weep. And it was in that moment that the Lord spoke to me two very important truths. And I want to share those with you today because some of y'all may be dealing with exactly what I went through and I just don't know it. And you're here today. And the first thing he said in my spirit is this, I have not changed. I have not changed. He's not changed. He never does. And it says, you see, my circumstances had changed, but my God had not changed. You see, um, the same God that I worshiped when I was on the mountaintop was the same God when I found myself looking up in the valley. He had not changed. Praise the Lord. He had not changed. And the second thing he told me, while I was sitting there on that pew is this, you are completely healed. That's what Christ told me. Now, now listen to me. I am not, I'm not living in some kind of fictitious world. Like, what do you mean? He told you you were healed. No, what, what do you mean? Look, 
What God told me is this. What God told me is this. Whether I heal you on this side of heaven or on the other side of heaven, you are completely and totally healed. And guess what? I got up and worshiped. I got up and worshiped. You see, Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the healer. I have seen it happen in my medical practice. I have heard testimonies of people in the church I've read about it in the Bible. I've seen what Jesus did when he walked on this earth. Jesus is the healer. But also, and at the same time, nowhere in Scripture does it say everybody on this side of heaven will be healed of their disease. It never says that. But at the same, but here's here's what it does say. This is exactly straight from Scripture. Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor cancer. Whatever you want to stick in there, none of that will be because the former things have passed away. And he said, behold, I am making all things new. Friends, this is what he promised me. And this is what he promises you today. That that we, if we're in Christ today... We are completely healed. We, we can have joy no matter what our circumstances are. Whether it's I lost my job, whether it's my husband left me, whether it's cancer, whatever it is, we can stand in the victory of eternity. And so what does it mean to live in the light of eternity? That's what I want to speak to today, living in the light of eternity. Maybe we could say we're living in the shadows of eternity. Um, Everybody open up your uh, Bible to Colossians, the third chapter for me. Colossians, the third chapter. We're going to start in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now switching over to the NLT version, I want you to see here it says there in the NLT, it says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Wherever you are today, whatever circumstances you're in, set your sights on the reality of heaven. So Paul is instructing us here to live in the light of eternity. You see, we live in this interesting place in biblical history. Some scholars, some biblical scholars like to call it, we live in the already, but the not yet. The already, but not yet. Well, what does that mean? Let me give you some examples. We're already adopted in Christ, but we're not yet adopted. Well, what do you mean? All right. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. It says this. So you have received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you. And and now you are his children and can call him Abba Father. But just flip eight verses over from 8.15 to 8.23 and it says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day that he will give us our full rights of adoption, including the new bodies he has promised us. So you see, we live in this already, not yet. We're already redeemed, but we're not yet fully redeemed. We're already sanctified in Christ, but not yet 
fully sanctified. Some people would say it like this under sanctification. We have positional sanctification. So at this moment in time when I accept Christ, I'm immediately made right before Christ. But I'm not permanently sanctified or glorified until Christ takes me home or comes back to get me. So we live in this in this in this area here where, where there, it, it kind of goes back and forth. We're already, but not yet. We're already saved, but we're not completely saved. Here's another one for you. We're already raised, but not yet raised. Ephesians 2 and 6. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So he raised us. It's already happened. But then we turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and it says... It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. So we live in this area of theological tension. We we, we still live on this other side of heaven um, where we have all of these spiritual blessings already, but they're not yet in their complete fullness as they will be one day. So back to Colossians chapter 3 and those first four verses. To put it very simply to you today, what Paul is trying to teach each and every one of us is this. Become in experience what you ultimately already are by God's grace. Okay? Become in experience the way you're living. Live in such a way in the reality of who you already are. In the fullness of Christ. We could say it like to this. Live today like you will live in eternity. Okay? When you're in eternity, you're not going to be concerned about cancer. You're not going to be concerned about how somebody treated you because things will be made perfect there. So we're to live today. He calls us to live today as believers in the light of eternity. And I want to challenge you to begin to live that way today. You see, if we want to live our lives on this earth the way Christ had designed us to, we have to live with eternity in our minds. If we are to live in the the reality of the victory that is ours, we have to live with eternity in our hearts and our minds. And that's even in the moment when the text message comes in and says you have cancer. Even in that moment, we have to begin to live in the light of eternity. Tony Evans says this, the greater your expectation is of heaven or eternity, the better your life will be on earth. And the lower your expectation is of heaven, the lower will be your life on earth because expectations affect behavior. So so why is this true? Because see, if our our view uh, of, uh, of the earth is is big and the view of heaven is small if our view of god and his power is small then everything that happens in the earth realm affects our hearts and our emotions and everything it takes us on a roller coaster and, and so it, it, like for example if, my, if if your boyfriend breaks up with you life is over it's a horrible day if you lose your football game, that was the, the championship game, it's the worst thing ever. Um, if your doctor tells you you've got a bad diagnosis, life is over. Because see, if the earth realm is big, everything that happens in the earth realm affects our hearts and our emotions. But on the flip side, on the flip side, if our view of God is humongous, and our view of, of eternity and how long it is and how awesome it is is humongous. Then whatever happens on this earth realm seems very small. And, and guess what happens then? We begin to move from victory to victory. So one of the verses that Christ gave me during my struggle with cancer was, is the Psalms 84. He gave me really three Psalms, but Psalms 84 and verse 5. I want you to listen to this. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are set on your pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. Now, Baca is translated weeping in most texts. So as they, trans, 
as they pass through a valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength until they appear before God in Zion. Do you hear that? When we are living with eternity on our minds and our hearts, we can go from strength to strength. So Webster's Dictionary, if you look up the word perspective, perspective is a particular attitude or way of regarding something, a point of view. Scott's definition is this. It's the, if you have your eyeglasses, those that are wearing them, it's the lenses through which you look and interpret life, okay? I, I don't know about y'all, but, but growing up, did you ever, you're at your grandma's house, your mom and dad's house, and they have their glasses on the side table when you were little and had good eyesight, because now they're my glasses over there on the table. And, uh, and, and you put those glasses on, and everything is just so distorted. You can't see it. It's all, it's all out of whack. And, and, and so um, we need, as the church of Jesus Christ, to change our perspective. And so some of us here in the church, not this church, the church, all of us in the church need to take off our worldly glasses that we're looking at life through. We need to wipe the sleep out of our eyes and we, be, we need to begin to look at the eyes through the eyes of Christ, through the light of eternity. Why is that important? Because this is not my home. This is not my home. I am victorious. I am victorious in every circumstance. I am loved. I am healed. Because as our passage says, for I have died and I am now hidden in Christ. And so I can live in the reality that is to come. So in these moments that I have with you today, I want to lay out three different ways that we can live in the light of eternity. Three different ways that we can live in the light of eternity. The first one is this. We're gonna, if we want to live in the light of eternity, we have to start living in the light of our new identity. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, this ain't my home. This ain't my home. Once we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we have a new home and we have a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old, the old has gone, the new is here. The NLT says it like this, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. All right, back to our main passage. Colossians chapter 3, verses starting in verse 5 now. It says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Listen here. You, you, each of us, me, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander from your lips. Do not lie to each other. If we flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, it's a, a parallel passage there. It says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with the God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the theme here? When we come to Christ, our old sinful nature needs to begin to fade away. And our new identity begins to rise up and and show itself. How do people see you? How about your co-workers? How about Saturday night when you're watching the football game with your friends? Do they see your old nature or do they see your new nature? God says we have a completely new identity. We don't look like we used to. We have a new home. Everything is different. You see, 
We don't, we don't listen to the music we used to listen to. Praise the Lord. I used to listen to some stuff that did not honor the Lord back in high school. We, we don't listen to what we used to. We don't watch what we used to watch because we know those things get in our mind and, and, and that, that's where Satan begins to take a foothold. And then it leads from that into looking at other things that we're not supposed to look at. Money and possessions, they lose their value when we're living in the light of eternity. We can't take it with us. You know, um, earthly accolades, they don't mean very much when you're living in the light of eternity and your new identity. We're not just different. When Christ comes in our life, when he radically changes us, we become new people. And, and, and I have to say this, if, if you're sitting out there listening to me today and you haven't changed from when you came to know Christ, there is a problem. There is a problem because when, when Christ comes in, he changes us and we get a new nature. And, and, and if we have a new identity that's in Christ, guess what? We have a new instruction manual. We have, we have a new instruction manual. Guess what? It's, not, it's no longer the world. The world is no longer our instruction manual. Neither is CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. None of those are our instruction manual. It's not our co-workers. It's definitely probably not our old friends. Um, it's not our girlfriend or our boyfriend. We have a new instruction manual that was written by God himself. And this instruction manual calls us to live life differently than the world around us. It calls us to live for the glory of our Savior. It calls us, it calls us to live like Jesus. To love like Jesus. To forgive like Jesus. So we're not just talking about actions like I didn't get drunk. We're talking about the heart. He changes our heart. And when he changes our heart, we look different. We live different. Um, keep reading there. Um, we're going to skip down to verse 12. And, and it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive each other whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of God rule your hearts. You see here, this is what, it, we're, we're not supposed to be the drunkards and the greedy and all these things. These are the new characteristics of our life. We're loving, we're forgiving, we're, we're doing, we're gentle, we're patient, we live with peace no matter what our circumstances. This is what it looks like. My life verse growing up, I had a, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Lovell, he's the head basketball coach at East Texas Baptist University, was at Bipsy, and uh, he poured into my life. I played AAU basketball uh, for him. Listen, guys, I was good back then. I hadn't grown an inch since seventh grade, but uh, back then I was pretty good. And, uh, and so, um, you know, he, what he did more for me than, than teach me to play the game of basketball is he t taught me to love Jesus. And, and so we had pretty much from 7th grade through 12th grade, more on and off at different seasons in that life because he was in college and this and that. We met together every week. We talked about the Word of God. We memorized Scripture. We asked each other hard questions like, have you said anything this week that would dishonor God? Have you looked at things that would dishonor God? And we had to answer those things with each other every week. And, and he taught me to love Jesus. And, and so... Our verse for our group, which has become my life verse, is this, 1 John 2, 6. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to know God must live as Jesus did. So this is the calling of living in your new identity, is we are supposed to reflect Jesus to the world around us, to be the aroma of Christ to all those that we come in contact with. Did y'all know that, that God's in the life-changing business? Let me ask that again. Do y'all know God's in a life-changing business? That's right. Um, I, I, you know, sometimes he doesn't just change, change our identity. He changes everything about us. He changes our name. He changes everything. I remember, I think it was two weeks, two Sundays ago, Pastor talked about 
Saul on that Damascus road when God showed up and he changed his name to Paul. And as I was thinking about that, I'd already was kind of trying to process my sermon and what I was going to preach on. And while he was talking about that, I, I thought about Rahab. So everybody in the Bible, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you in the Old Testament, then you know Rahab the prostitute or the harlot. That's what she was named for. But then she put her faith in the one true God. She put her faith in him and, and he completely changed her name. He completely transformed her. Cause, and you say, how do you know that? Well, she changed a little bit because if we flip over to Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, and I'm not going to read it, all of a sudden we see that Rahab the prostitute is not only in the lineage of kings, but in the lineage of Christ himself. I mean, hallelujah, praise the Lord that he, he changes us and we don't have to live under our old identity. And when we come to Christ, we have a new identity, a new instruction manual, a new calling, and we become children of the Most High King. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. We become children of the King. But, but, but here's, there's a little catch here. There's a little catch here you got to get. And, and it's this. We must choose to walk in this new identity. We must choose to live every day, every second in light of our new identity. You see, some of us, some of us in this room, some of you listening today online uh, are still living in the shame of your past. And, And Jesus is saying to you, he's saying, I changed your name. I changed your identity. Some of you are living defeated, but he's already won the battle. Some of you are living like you are dead because of what the doctor told you, but he says you are healed. You see, some of us on the other end of the spectrum, so we got those people, we got people over here that are saying, oh yeah, I'm born again, bought with the blood of Christ, I'm a new person, but then they want to live just like they used to live, just like the world around them. And both of them are wrong. Both of those options are wrong because God is in the life-changing business. And we need to pull out our right glasses, put on the right lenses, and begin to look at who he says we are. And, And so to live in the light of eternity, we must live in the light of our new identity. But there's something else we must also start doing. We must start living in the light of our new community. Living in the light of our new community. When we get a new identity, we also get a new family or community. You see, at the moment you accept Christ, you instantaneously become a part of a new family. A family that is not defined by biology. It is defined by the blood of Christ alone. Okay, a family that will last for eternity. Colossians chapter three, back to verse 11. He says this here. There is no Greek or Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian or slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Now we go back to where we started, which is identity. I I put that as the first point for a reason because the identity affects every other point that I'm going to talk about today. What is your identity? What is your identity? Is your identity, is it your work? Is it your political party? Is it your biological family? Is it your skin color? Is it your business smarts, your street smarts? Where do you find your identity? Or is your identity in the blood of Christ? You see, if we put our identity in any of these things, then you, other than the blood of Christ, then you will not value and see the church as God intended for you to see it. I will not value and see the church the way God intended me for to, to see it. But if you are living in the light of eternity and your identity is Christ and his precious blood, guess what? all of a sudden, something changes. When that happens, you you see, it's a miracle. All of a sudden, Miss Zonda, Mr. Rod, Mr. Jason, Danny, 
all of a sudden, you become closer family to me than any biological person with white skin that is not a follower of Christ. Do you see what happens here? We enter into a supernatural family when we put our our trust in Christ alone. You see, if you are living in the light of eternity, then you have a new community. And this new community is a multi-ethnic body that functions together in unity for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Have we as the church cheapened the blood of Christ? Is the blood of Christ so weak? Is it so weak that, that, that it cannot tear down the walls of a hostility between blacks and whites, Asians and Latinos? Is the blood of Christ not strong enough to do that? He said when Christ came and he bled on that cross and he died for us, he did it so that we vertically could have a relationship with him. But he didn't say stop there. He said, I'm going to reconcile you to me. Why? So that you can be ministers of reconciliation to others. (laughs) Friends, I think we've cheapened the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is big enough to tear down the ugly history of our past. The the blood of Christ is able to do all of those things. And and, and as I talked about last time, we we pray so often that we we act like we want to live in the light of eternity from our pulpits. We act like it. And I'm not talking about this one. I'm talking about across our nation. We act like your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. And, and And then we read Revelation 7 and 9, it says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great war, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. The blood of Jesus can do it. That's the only way. That's that's the only hope that we have. That's the only hope for all the unrest that we see in our country. It's found in the precious blood of Christ that takes us out of our our old self and brings us into a new identity and a new family. Do any of y'all like to read um, mystery novels? Anybody? I'm not a big reader, okay, but I like to watch a mystery. So, um, you know, now my wife would probably rather read it I would rather watch it. Um, But I think this would be universal to all of us. If you're about to watch or read a mystery, you hate it if somebody comes up and spoils the mystery, right? That's the worst. It just, then you're kind of like, well, why did I even read it? I mean, what's the point? I already know what happens. So um, everybody flip in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In this reading, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. You see here, listen to this. This is important. The mystery of the gospel to the lost world is that Jews and Gentiles in biblical days and in today's time, whites and blacks and Hispanics and Methodists and Catholics and Baptists, we can come together and worship God in, with love and harmony and unity. That is the mystery that, that the world needs to see, that we are one people. We are one people defined by the blood of Christ. But unfortunately, sin spoiled the mystery. Sin spoiled the mystery that God had set up for the world. You see, as we discussed in my first message when I was here, as many of us know, Martin Luther King famously said that Sunday remains the most segregated day 
in America. I mean, I was thinking about this week, every, everywhere I go in life, um, you know, wh- wherever I go, if it's to work, if it's to the grocery store, I'm living in a multi-ethnic life. And, and praise the Lord, I'm living in one here too today. So that's good too. Um, and, 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 you know, um, I was thinking about this. So um, I grew up, when my sports growing up, I, I, basketball was probably my favorite. But um, I got a little too slow, couldn't jump quite good enough. You know, I still can shoot the ball, but that's about it. So basketball kind of went away. I played tennis, baseball, and football. Those were the things I liked. I did not play soccer. So, um, but my kids, um, a couple of my kids have started playing soccer. And, and so over the last couple years, I've gone out and watched soccer. I really didn't know the game. I've had to learn it. Matthew, correct me if I say something wrong here. But... Um, Soccer, sometimes what I notice what happens, it's a little different than football for sure. So if the offensive team is driving down and they're trying to kick a goal down here, all of a sudden it gets real congested with all these players in here. And so what they do in soccer is they'll actually kick the ball back and spread the field out so that they can come up with their way to try to attack the goal. Well, I'm, what I'm telling you today is maybe the church needs to learn a few lessons from soccer. Maybe we need to look back so that we can move forward. And if we look back, we see that sin spoiled the mystery of the gospel. White Christians didn't think that black Christians were equal or co-heirs in the grace of God. White Christians wanted to maintain their power their system, their, their culture. They didn't want it to change. And in doing so, they wiped out the mystery that God had set up for the world. You see, if we're living in the light of eternity, we have a new identity with a new community. And listen to this. The world will take notice not only how we live individually, but who we live with in community. Let me say that one more time. The world will take notice not only how I'm living individually, but who I am living with in community. You see, the world is watching us. And it's a shame right now in this world of racial unrest that the church is not taking the lead. But how could we? How could we? How could we? How could we take the lead as we are right now? But you see, if we were living in the light of eternity, living in the unity created through the blood of Christ, we could serve as the answer. We could be the light. People would be running to the church saying, what are you doing? Like, how is this working? What, what in the world are you doing? And, and, and you know, um, for I was reading, I started a new book yesterday. My wife was out of town. I was reading, you know, the church of Jesus Christ was a multi-ethnic body for the first thousand years. For the first thousand years, we were a a, a completely a multi-ethnic body. The book of Acts is a multi-ethnic church. And and we see, I don't know if y'all, have y'all ever heard of the Azusa Street Revival that took place in America? It's what began the Pentecostal movement in America. Well, you want to know something? You know how that movement began? It began because white brothers and black brothers came together and said, we need to be the body of Christ. And a revival took place and people got saved and a whole, a whole denomination grew out of that. And, and so um, I think that the, the idea of, of a multi-ethnic church is the heart of God. Um, Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King's mentor, he, he started a multi-ethnic church. Why? Not because he thought it was great. It's because it's the heart of God. And when we're covered by the blood of Christ, you are my brothers and sisters. And we can live that way. Jason, I'm going to chase a rabbit tail here. Ephesians chapter 2, 15 and 16. Pastor said I could chase him as long as I caught something. So if he's listening, I'm doing it. Here we go. It says this in the NLT. It says Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups, together as one body. 
Christ reconciled both groups to God by the means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. I heard, I heard a story the other day. It, it was a, a, a white church plant had moved into an urban uh, area of town. I don't remember where it was. It was in a, in a, it was in a duplex, uh, I mean a shopping center-like thing. And you know they were one of the little buildings. And then there was a Kroger in the parking lot too. And so they, the, the, the white members in, in there, and trying to be nice, they kept asking one of the, the, the women that worked, that was a black woman that worked at Kroger, would she come and go to church with them? And so finally one day she said, well, let me see. She walked over there to the window. She said, maybe later. Okay, why? Because we like to go to what's comfortable. It's what we naturally do. But you see, the hostility, the walls have been torn down through the blood of Christ. And and we have a new community. And it it says that we're supposed to be ministers of reconciliation. Well, if we don't look reconciled within these walls, how can we go out and preach reconciliation to the world? So we must embrace our new community. We must not forsake it. God did not design us to live the Christian life alone. He gave us a community. Nor did he design us to live in our little homogeneous churches or our certain little preferred denominations and not embrace everyone who is under the blood of Christ as our brothers and sisters. And so we need to change as the church of Jesus Christ. There is a mystery that the world needs to see. We know the story. We just have to live it out so that they can see it displayed. And finally today, if we want to live in the light of eternity, we must not only live with a new identity and a new community, but we must also start to live in the light of our new mission. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, this ain't my real job. This ain't my real job. I don't care what you do. This ain't my real job. You see, once again, we're going back to the word identity. Back to the word identity. So what, you know, when, we, when it comes to your profession, when it comes to your profession, what do you see yourself as? Do you see yourself as a doctor, a construction worker, a nurse, a social worker, a stay-at-home mom? What do you see what do you see yourself as or do you see yourself as a follower of Christ that is on a mission to bring him glory So many of us in the church we like to separate our lives into different compartments So so for me I could say well um I go to church on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights so I'm a Christian there okay And and, and on Mondays through Fridays I'm a doctor at my office. That's what I do. Uh, on Saturday mornings, I'm a, I'm, I'm a lawn specialist. On Saturday nights, I'm an LSU fan. On Sunday nights, I'm a Saints fan. You heard that, Miss Onda? <laughs> um, <laughs> she's giving me the thumbs down back there. <laughs> so, um, you know, we have these compartments that we stick our life in, okay? And, and so when I'm at work, I'm totally focused on seeing patients and treating diseases. But but that's not what scripture says. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. It says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now in the NLT, it says like this, so that, in, so that he is first in everything. And scripture says that we were created for the glory of Christ. We were created. And so if he is the head of everything, that means whether I'm at church, at work, at school, at a football game, my primary identity is that I am a blood-bought child of the king and my primary mission is to bring him glory. And, And how do I bring him glory? I bring him glory by obeying his commands. I bring him glory by loving other people, by not being greedy, by putting others above myself. I bring him glory by sharing my testimony of what God has done in my life in hopes that they will trust him and they will fall on their knees and they will worship him as the one true God. 
That's how, that's what my job is. And you see, so you, you can take, for example, for me, um, every doctor, family, I'm a family medicine doctor. Every family medicine doctor in Shreveport Bossier can treat strep throat. If you come in with strep throat, I can put you on amoxicillin 875 twice a day for 10 days. If you fail that, I can put you on something different. But we have, I have people coming in my office every day that are dying, and they're going to spend an eternity in hell. And it's not because of the strep throat. It's because their heart is diseased, and they need a Savior. And so if I'm living, if I'm living in the light of eternity, then I'm focused on their salvation, on their heart, as much as I am their strep throat. Everyone, open your, turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. Verses starting in verse 18. So what exactly, so what exactly is our new mission? What exactly is our calling as followers of Christ? Then then IV, we're going to read starting in verse 18. Then Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I want you to flip, if you're reading, flip over to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. John Piper says this, when When it comes to the Great Commission or what I am calling our new mission, we are either goers, givers, or disobedient. When it comes to what God has called us to do in Matthew 28, we're either going, we're giving to it, or we're disobedient. You see, I grew up, I grew up in the church. My, my mom and dad are right back there. My dad's a pastor. They taught me to love Jesus. And praise the Lord for that. And, and, and um, you know, um, but one of the things that, that, that I, Unfortunately, I grew up with regard to my calling as a new mission. Much of my life, I was disobedient. Why? Because a good part of my Christian life, I thought this was command was for someone else. You see, it was for the pastor. It was for the missionary. It was for all of those other people, but it, but it wasn't for me. But you see, I missed it. If we're living in the light of eternity, it means that I'm fully focused on my new mission. It's the foremost priority in everything I do. I don't ever compartmentalize Christ out of everything that I'm a part of because that is the mission that he's called me to. David Platt writes in his book, Radical, he says, where in the Bible is missions or this new mission we're talking about ever identified as an optional program? Indeed, Jesus himself has not merely called us to go to the nations. He has created us and commanded us to go to all nations. We have taken this command and though and reduced it to a calling. He says, I find it interesting that we don't do this with other words of Jesus. He said, we take Jesus's command in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. And, and we say, that means somebody else. Uh, but then we look at Jesus's command, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. And we say, that's for me. That's for me. Um, In the process, he says, we've unnecessarily and unbiblically drawn a line of distinction, assigning the obligations of Christianity to a few while keeping the privileges for us all. He's called us all to go. So Jesus, when he spoke these words in Matthew 28, he was sitting on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Now, there was something different. He had met with his disciples in this exact place many times looking over the Sea of Galilee, teaching them. But there was something different there. First thing that was different is that he had just risen from the dead. So guess what? When he says all authority, he means all authority. He just conquered the grave and death. The second thing that's different about this passage in Matthew 28 is that this is the last words in the Gospels that we see that he speaks to his disciples. And the third, if you really, the very next words that he speaks is Acts 1.8, where he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then verse 9 says, and Jesus ascended. So these are his very last words. Now think about that for a minute. The importance of last words. 
if God were to come to me and, and, and he were to speak in my spirit and he says, Scott, you got five minutes left, buddy, and then I'm taking you home. If he were to tell me that, I, what would I do? I would go to my wife and my kids and I would tell them how much I loved them and I would tell them how much Jesus loved them and how faithful Jesus was and to live their lives for him, to lay down their lives at his feet because he is worthy of their lives and that he will use them. And, and, and why would I tell them that? Why would I tell them that? Because that's what I tried to tr- teach them for their 17 years on this earth. I've been trying to teach them that Jesus is worthy of your life. And so, so when Jesus says here, these are Jesus' last words. And I'm thinking, because he's God, he may have known they were his last words, okay? And he said, all authority is mine. Go and make disciples of all people. These are his last words. They must have been important to him. When we read these verses, we like to often go to the word go. But the better translation of the Greek verb tense here is make disciples, therefore, as you are going. In order to make disciples, we must go. But go where? We go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Shreveport, Bossier, New Orleans, Haiti. We go to the world to bring the good news. The same story could be true. Um, Charlie's not old enough to mow the yard yet, but he loves pushing his little play mower. And so one day when he's like 16 playing his video games and I'm leaving to work and I say, son, go and mow the yard before I get home. Well, in order for him to mow the yard, he's got to get up off the couch, put down the remote control, walk out to the garage and get the mower. And then the command is mow the yard. Well, the same thing is true as we are going, as we are going to work, as we are going to the grocery stores, we are going to Haiti, as we are going to Florida, where Mr. Craig's about to go, whatever we're doing, we are to make disciples. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to go in today to what it means to make a disciple. Tony Evans says like this, though, real quick, true discipleship is loving a man to Jesus until he's ready to love another man to Jesus or loving a woman to Jesus until they're ready to love another. And once again, I want you to remember missions or this great commission is not the ultimate goal of the church. The ultimate goal of the church is to bring Christ worship and honor and glory. And the ultimate reward of our new mission is that we will see people falling on their knees and crying out to God. And that is what our hope and our purpose is. And David Platt, another part of that book that I love, and I'll paraphrase here in Radical, he says, we're not going to get, we're not going to, if we're living in the light of eternity, we're going to already be doing this. But if we're not, we're not going to get to heaven one day and wish that we had made more money, got more stuff, took more vacations. We were, we were not going to wish we had had, we'd had more, more um, a better retirement plan. We are going to live for the day when every nation, tribe, and tongue falls before the throne saying, worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain. So I ask you today in closing, are you living in victory in every circumstance? Are you living in the light of your new identity? Are you living in obedience to the new rule book? Are you living in the light of your new community? And are you living in the light of your new mission? How many of y'all have done one of those uh, genetic tests like 23andMe or um, Ancestry.com? Has anybody done one of those? Yes, yeah, so some of y'all have done them. Um, I haven't done one. But it's interesting because all the time I have people that come to me in my practice or friends or whatever, and and they find out from doing that test that they had a little bit more black in their bloodstream than they thought, or they had a a little bit more European or a little bit more of Latino or something. There's something a little bit more than what they thought was in their their blood system growing up. And recently I read a story about, I've never heard of this person, but I read the story about an aspiring actress by the name of Sarah Culbertson. And Sarah was adopted. She was a biracial kid. She was adopted in West Virginia. And when she got into her mid-20s, she began to research her ancestry. She wanted to, she spent her whole life like questioning who she was and, and all of these things. So she got a private investigator She did Ancestry.com. They put all these things together and they discovered in this search 
that her father was the chief of a tribe in Sierra Leone. She was the granddaughter of a paramount uh, chief. And in Western African culture, that made her a princess. So you see, she had lived her whole life questioning who she was, only to find out that she was a princess. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a child of the King. You don't have to search anymore. Don't waste 20 years. You are victorious. You are a child of the King, and you can live in the victory that is yours. It's time to live every day in the light of our eternity. Every head uh, bowed, every eye closed.